We've got your goldenrod sheet from last time. We got about halfway through that uh, first page that is listed there. Uh, this is kind of the beginning of looking at the common service. And so we saw that at the beginning uh, of the American Revolution that we had Henry Melchor Muhlenberg, who was kind of the father of all American Lutheranism. Um, back in our study from before, uh, we had him coming over at 1742. Uh, there was already... Uh, a man named Zinzendorf, uh, who was a Moravian, going around uh, kind of a Calvinist, uh, claiming to have some connections with, with Lutheranism, but reality is, is not. Um, has a good hymn in our hymnal, actually, but other than that, uh, Muhlenberg kind of went through and ran him off and said, you're not a Lutheran, and to get him out of the Lutheran congregations. We did see that in the very first uh, bringing together, he tried to have, with the church order of 1748, uh, it was a very conservative, let's see, uh, a very conservative liturgy, one that was based, he said for it was from a London service, but it was not exactly that. Uh, we saw that many of the parts looked a lot like our, uh, our service, and um, that is what they used. They took six of them, <laughs> wrote it down, uh, and uh, they, you know, the pastors had handwritten copies of it, the, uh, of, of the order and how it was to be done. Uh, the people often used uh, hymnals. I mentioned last time, and so I brought a couple of those along. Um, this one, I think, is from 1917. It actually has on the front of it, as I mentioned before, this was not in the pews. It was not something that stayed at church. Uh, this one is of my grandfather, uh, my mother's father, Oliver F. H. Kremel, and it has 1925, the day that he was confirmed. Um, and so this is the one. It is completely in German. Um, I do have upstairs his catechism, uh, which is uh, German on one side and English on the other. And so, you know, he, he was in the midst of the time that, that these things were done. Uh, all of them, as you can see, I've got a 1913 one. Uh, this is from the Haugi Senate, and so Norwegian kind of Senate, uh, pietistic uh, leanings. I've got one from 1918. Uh, uh, some get a little bit bigger. Uh, 1888 and uh, 1907. Uh, they do start to get, uh, here's 1907 where we have the English uh, starting in that. Nevertheless, whether you're looking at that one, or whether you're looking at this one, the type print is six-point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll hand it down to Liam. Liam can probably see it just fine. What are you guys talking about? Everything's good, huh? Um, so anyway, uh, that is where you kind of see the, the hymns, and, and that's what the people would have had. And so... If they did the other part, uh, it would have been uh, from memory and from that kind of repetition. Uh, we saw that a man later on, uh, a man, 
hundred years later, seventy years later, Beale Schmucker, Neil Schmucker, was the one who looked back at these things and examined them. He is the one, where, as we're going to go forward, we're going to see uh, that uh, this particular uh, hymnal here, 1748, was uh, about the best they had for, for a short length of time, and then it was gone. Um, and so uh, we're going to kind of push forward with our uh, study we're on page 15 um, in uh, this uh, book, The Common Service, on uh, which uh, Bishop Heiser uh, pretty well outlines and uh, goes through this. And so we're going to be taking a look at that. We got as far as uh, about bottom of page 14, top of page 15. I'm going to play about a three-minute clip from him, and then later on... Uh, at the appropriate time, I'll play another one of about four or five minutes or so. Uh, as we got done, his conclusion, in short, the ministerium was blessed to be served by pastors, most preeminently Muhlenberg, who had a knowledge of and appreciation for some of the best-served liturgies still in use in the Lutheran territorial churches in Germany. However... When the knowledge base among the clergy declined or was defiled by false doctrine, the liturgy deteriorated. And so you're going to see that those pretty well go uh, hand and hand in hand. Uh, let's see if I've got. Uh, it might be a little loud for you, Mary. You ready? Mm. All right. Um, I think I got it cued, but I look exactly right. <laughs> It's okay. Let's see. Science Form 7. This key rule of development of common service of 1888 would see this, uh, that that study produced much fruit among virtually all English speaking Lutherans in North American Milan. Reformed usage which marked the South German services. The study that would be instructive to those who desire to develop a common English liturgy for all evangelical Lutheran synods and congregations in this country. End quote. In short, the ministerium was blessed to serve by pastors, most preeminently Muhlenberg, who had a knowledge of and appreciation for some of the best preserved liturgies still in use in Lutheran territorial churches in Germany. When the knowledge base among the clergy declined or was defiled by false doctrine, then the liturgy deteriorated. Uh, when Schumacher's analysis of the 1748 liturgy was published in 1882, he was promoting precisely such a renewed study of the most faithful liturgies of the Reformation and post-Reformation period, after he'd been instrumental in the General Council's publication of the 1868 Church Book, which was shaped precisely by such an informed study. And his key role in the development of the common service of 1888 would see this, uh, that study produce much fruit among virtually all English-speaking Lutherans in North America and beyond. Um, it's, without exaggeration, I can state definitively that Bill and Schmucker had more to do with the service he used every Sunday than any other figure in the 19th century. And most of you have heard his name until now. I mean, that, that's, he, he working together with the rest of the committee, he was the chairman of the committee and was the one who really drove the study of the old liturgies, um, really shaped the life that we do in English. However, before we turn to the pleasant things like that, uh, later on, we must first confront the reality of the liturgies which prevailed in the English usage after the death of Muhlenberg. 
And even before Muhlenberg's death, uh, the doctrinal differences and divisions among the North American Lutherans were evident in the changes which were introduced in the Lutheran liturgy and Hinduism. As noted previously, all the copies of the 1748 liturgy were handwritten. It was only in seven, at the, a 1782 meeting of the Lutheran ministerium that the decision was made to publish a first printed edition of the agenda. Prior to this point, an official hymn book was published. An edition of the Marburger Design Book was printed at Germantown, Pennsylvania in its first edition in 1759. So they appropriated the whole Marburger hymn book with its lectionary its, uh, and all the other attendant documents and just reprinted it. It was in the common domain. Um, indeed, the 1748 liturgy specified that the Marburger Design Book would be used as the source for elections, in other words, for the readings of the days, and collects for the church year. Um, I've studied the Marburger, and it's a very conservative, very traditional lectionary. It includes all of the minor festivals you would expect to see. You know, St. Stephen's is the day after Christmas. That will go away later. Um, St. John's follows up to St. Stephen's. That will not be done away. In point of fact, with where we're going in American Lutheran church history, you will see all of the minor festivals stripped. Um, even Reformation Day will not be observed for generations. Um, it's a, an official holiday of the church. Um, things get knocked out in the most bare bones, and at its worst points, you have the president of the whole synod's publishing book saying, and hey, here's the lectionary for the Sundays. It probably would be good if you didn't use it, because otherwise people would get bored with it. You can completely not understand the catechetical meaning of it. Anyway, it's a bad stuff ahead. At this point, the point is that they got to establish on a solid basis. Um, the extensive lectionary includes the readings from many of the minor festivals. The Gazana book included. Luther's small catechism, the epistles, gospels, and collects for the entire church year, and the middle of those markers of the confessional hymnal, the history of the destruction of Jerusalem. Why it was always in there, I have no idea, but it was. You always find the history of the destruction of Jerusalem in the old Luther hymn books. Um, the passion is that always makes sense to me. I'm not quite sure what was going on with the destruction of Jerusalem um, being published in there, but that's a topic for another day when I understand it. So, Beal Melanchthon Schmucker is the son of Samuel S. Schmucker. Okay? Um, in, my, in my summer class with the school age kids, there are some opportunities where you have to be a little creative and, and pull out of them. Um, when when I say Samuel S. Schmucker, you need to go boo hiss. <laughs> when I say Beal Schmucker, Beal Melanchthon Schmucker, you need to go hooray. Okay, <laughs> that is about what we have. His father was horrendous. His son, you know, we can't thank him enough for what he has restored for American Lutheranism, and that was one of the points that was made. Uh, by, by Bishop Heiser. As this uh, handwritten book, finally it was published a little bit later with an agenda, uh, they used uh, one of the songbooks, the Marburger songbook, published in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Uh, they used that for a lot of the material uh, that was there. Again, this is still a German book. We haven't gotten to the English yet. Uh, he does make, as it notes, there were a lectionary, an extensive lectionary. By a lectionary, I mean appointed readings for each Sunday, 
holy day, minor festival kind of thing. And so on this day, you will read this for the epistle and this for the gospel. Um, and, and those were there. And even he mentioned about how, you know, if you think that, that we had, they, they were already still had pulled these things in and were, and were celebrating those. Um, he also mentioned in the uh, uh, hymn book, which again was a personal book that you took with you all the time, Luther's small catechism. It would actually print out in the back the epistles and the gospels. They were they were printed in there. They appointed colics, the prayers that were appointed for each day. And as he mentioned at the end, kind of an anomaly kind of thing, is the history of the destruction of Jerusalem. Kind of go, it was about a three-page section that described Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD. Now you may have heard me talk about how at the end of the church year, where Jesus pulls out this, you know, and, and, or when Jesus explains that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, it is a type of the end times. So, the destruction of Jerusalem always had its purpose of teaching us, here is what happens when you have a religion apart from Christ. They were God's people. They kept all the rights and got rid of Jesus. And the whole temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. You can't even have Judaism anymore because you can't do what it says. It lets us know as we get to the future that in the end, the last day, everything will be destroyed and only those who trust in Christ will be saved. You answered my question. So, um, anyway, that, that's what we have. As he goes on, he talks about here how, uh, what happens after this. Uh, so, this was, uh, they had 17, uh, you have on your sheet, that order of 1748. Um, moving on, on uh, towards the bottom here, page 15, in 1782, four pastors took part in the creation of a new hymnal with the senior pastor Muhlenberg playing the primary role in selecting the hymnody. However, in 1785, with Muhlenberg now quite advanced in years, the ministerium placed Reverend J.H.C. Helmuth, the pastor of the most influential parish, St. Michael's and Zion in Philadelphia, as chairman of the Agenda and Hymnal Committee. In the words of Spaith, Reverend Helmuth, was instructed to make some changes and abbreviations in the hymns, and a committee consisting of Reverend Helmus Schmidt and Muhlenberg uh, was appointed to make some changes also in the new printed edition of the agenda. The result of these different instructions is before us in the agenda and hymnal of in the book of 1786, a German one. It's evident that a period of transition has set in between 1782 and 1786. So, in this four-year period of time, in which they're getting ready to publish, finally, a, a hymnal with the agenda and, and those things together, they start that, but by the time it gets completed and ready to be published, on the one side, we recognize an endeavor to adhere faithfully to the usage and order as it was handed down by the fathers and the founders of the ministerium, the Pennsylvania ministerium, on the other hand, there are undeniable evidences of deterioration, not only in matters of good liturgical taste, but even in points of doctrine. The same 
emotional subjectivism, which in the fatherland led first to pietism and next to rationalism, begins to show itself both in the agenda and in the hymn book. Though for the present, the desire still preponderates to hold fast to the good inheritance of the fathers. So, the reason I went through the history we had before is, yeah, what happened? Well, we had orthodoxy, then we had pietism, which tried to make everything an emotional and subjective, which finally led to rationalism, which said the only thing that really matters is reason. And so, you know, this made everything snappy, this wanted to get rid of everything divine. Um, both these things had an immense effect upon, and we already see it as, finally, the published 1786 hymnal is kind of a mixed bag, and so we're going to take a look at it. There were good and bad. Let's take a look at what was good. The published 78. 1786 hymnal had a foreword by H.M. Muhlenberg, which emphasized the importance of hymnody to the teaching of the faith. So, uh, Muhlenberg pretty well had the hymnody in line uh, by the time he had to relinquish and, and allow others to do it. So most of that stays. What does he write and teach us about hymnody? Talent one. There's four points. One, talented and gifted teachers will choose for public worship such hymns as are suited for mixed assemblies and as far as possible agree with the truths they are intended to support, clarifying them and making them impressive. So he says, listen, we need to make sure that uh, uh, we have uh, hymns that are going to teach this truth and we got to teach the people about the the hymns that are there and what those mean. Two, it is eminently to be desired that all singers, both men and women, in public and private worship remain conscious of the meaning of the text and that when they proclaim the words with their mouths and lips, they also think about them and be sensitive to their meaning. Otherwise, this passage quoted in Matthew 15.8 applies, this people draw are near to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Also Amos 5.23. So he talks about the meaning of the words and that we might understand them, but also he talks about how it is the job of the people to proclaim the words. That is, as you sing these hymns, you are making a proclamation of your faith to your neighbor, to others. Um, and so uh, uh, speaks about that importance. Three, experienced and faithful pastors also do well to take the opportunity to explain the core hymns. Uh, in German, it is Kernleiter, uh, uh, or leader, Kernleiter. The leader is, is a hymn. So if you have Kern, it's the core hymns. If you have the Hauptleader, they are the chief hymn, whatever it is. So he's, he's talking about something about core hymns to develop their concepts and to seek to make the hymns comprehensible to the souls entrusted to their care. To do so will not remain without profit and blessing. What matters is not the number of hymns, but rather the choice of the best 
and most powerful, and for that we still have, thank God, freedom. And, did I get that right? Most powerful. And for that we still have, thank God, freedom and opportunity as sensible and experienced Christians can themselves perceive from this book. Especially in the Reformation, by the sainted Luther and his faithful co-workers has the Holy Spirit shown himself mightily fruitful through psalms and spiritual songs. These are now called the old hymns. They were then very well suited to the circumstances of the time and very edifying. And they are still so today, provided one still has a sound taste for the genuine truths of the faith and salvation. which form the very bedrock of Lutheran hymnody, uh, from which usually hymns of the day and so forth are selected. They're the, the, the best Lutheran hymns and have been recognized as such throughout time. You have very conscious of this saying, you know, wise, faithful, experienced pastors teach the core Lutheran hymnody, uh, even when it is 15 stanzas long. Because um, we know these things. What matters is not the number of things, but rather the choice of the best and most powerful. For, uh, and for that, we still have, thank God, freedom and opportunity, as sensible and experienced Christians can themselves proceed from this book. Especially in the Reformation by the Saint of Luther and his faithful co workers, has the Holy Spirit shown himself mightily fruitful through psalms and spiritual songs. Well, I thought there was more there, but. I'm going to go on just a little bit forward and then go back and talk about it. Muhlenberg's forward demonstrates a clear intention to retain and teach a faithful hymnody. His understanding of and emphasis on the Kernleiter, for example, is such that it would encourage an expression of Lutheran doctrine in parish practice. Carl Schock notes regarding the Kernleiter that it is the Reformation core of evangelical hymnody that the 16th century produced and was considered normative for Lutheran congregational song through the middle of the 17th century. This, the acknowledgement of this core united the efforts of Muhlenberg and later confessional Lutherans with the endeavors of the faithful fathers of the Reformation era. All right. Um, <coughs> Kernleiter, he says, already, end of the 1500s, 16th century, he says, it was there, it was a core of hymnody. What is this Kernleiter? What is this? What is this core of Christ. humanity? Okay. Christ, Jesus Christ. 
Should be the hymn of the day. It was a hymn appointed for every Sunday, sometimes for minor festivals and other days, and those hymns were designed to teach the theme of the day as it's found in the gospel, and those then served as the core hymnody which every congregation used, you know, and you used it with the one-year series every year. You knew that when it came around that there was going to be, uh, Advent 1 was going to be Savior of the Nations Come, that was going to be the hymn of the day, because it fit the reading, and that's what it was for. And so that's what this uh, court, and it says, you know what, we, we, we already, as, as Luther was trying to get people to write hymns, and other people were, it, by the time you got to uh, uh, the end of the 16th century, end of the 1500s, there was pretty well enough hymns written that would fit that. Uh, and those then were to be used and, and uh, you know, were put to memory uh, for it. As uh, Muhlenberg goes through, again, they already had a lectionary that they followed. Um, and we talked about it. They bought it from the Marburg. They had the colleagues. They used the hymns, and he says we need to make sure that uh, people know these and, and learn these. And so that's 1748, uh, <coughs> not the 1748, by the time they get to the 1786, those hymns are in there. That also, except for the hymnal, pretty well gets lost. Um, so, if you're not uh, producing hymns that is going to support the theme of the services, what kind of hymnody do you think is going to replace it? Maybe just whatever somebody feels good about that thing. Well, if you were a pietist, then everybody was. And I'm still thinking, too, like going to a three-year lectionary is also going to really destroy all that. Yes. So you've got the emotionality, the subjectivism of, of, uh, of pietism. Then you have rationalism, which pretty well takes out everything else. And now we start singing about... Uh, the beautiful sun rising in the east and the trees and the birds singing and, and which has wait a minute, I thought we are in church you know, man, um, yeah, those are the things that go away and now, and we're going to be as we go forward and such, you know instead of it having uh, if the lectionary goes away and it did as uh, Bishop Heiser mentioned you know uh, here's a lectionary, but don't use it. I know the church in the past did, but that will just turn into rote memories. You know, it's just going to be words. We need to, you know, you need to not use that. Well, then if that goes away, then singing the hymns that go with that go away. And so now, I mean, just to kind of draw all the connections, in the end, it's either my favorite hymns or your favorite hymns whatever those might be, and for whatever reason they are. And that's what we see going on. Now, to apply a bit of this uh, as well to our uh, 
our common situation, um, hymn of the day. What about this hymn of the day? Uh, I'm quoting, uh, I've got some books, I'm quoting from Lutheran service book, uh, their companion to the hymnody, in which they tell us just a little bit, uh, they do a pretty good summary. They say, early list of de tempore hymns, hymns of the time, or hymns of the day, and it says, in a dozen or more of the 16th century territorial church orders, they had much in common with each other, uh, but they also exhibited a variety of selections. So, what's it saying? Yeah, all the hymn, hymn books that were being produced, they all had these hymns of the day. Yes, granted, by and large, they agree. Granted, there were places where, well, some might have one another, um, but uh, some of the things were, you know, they were trying to get enough German hymns. They were all in Latin, so they were trying to get people to write them. So as they rhymed, sometimes you would replace a better one with that. Uh, if you know about J.S. Bach, J.S. Bach writes <coughs> cantatas for every Sunday of the church year over a period of about four years. With these cantatas, there's a choir piece, and then there is a special hymn of the day. He always chose that hymn of the day in order to explain, uh, and that was a part of it. Notice he goes on, uh, um, using them similarly related to the gospel and epistle of the day. Now you might remember there were no Old Testament readings until after 1960 in Vatican II. Um, having said that, let me, let me asterisk, let me make a point. During the morning and evening services of Matins and Vespers, there were different readings, and many of them were from the Old Testament. On the Sunday mornings, there were two readings. One was called the Epistle, one was called the Gospel. The Gospel was always from the Gospels. The Epistle was mostly from the Epistles. <laughs> Sometimes um, the epistle would be from the Old Testament. So it wasn't always, but sometimes would. So if you were here Ash Wednesday, um, not only did I mess up the bulls on a bit, but here's the thing, just to give you a little complexity to it. The gospel reading is always Matthew 6 about don't do your deeds to be seen by men. The epistle reading was actually supposed to be from Joel 2. reading is Joel 2. So you got an Old Testament and a, and a Gospel. Well, when Lutheran worship, LSB, you know, when LBW, when some of these came along, and we added a third reading in order to follow uh, the Vatican II and, and, and that, you, you kind of said, oh yeah, well most of the time we just added an Old Testament reading. But if you had an Old Testament reading, then you had an Old Testament, an Old Testament in a gospel. So most of the time, we took that Old Testament reading, Joel 2, stuck it over here, and we put an epistle reading here. Um, well, in the in in our uh, Augustana's book, they have the real the Old Testament, <laughs> the, the epistle, which is the Old Testament, Joel 2, and Matthew 6, and then they have. Uh, another Old Testament reading, and then another, there are four readings that, that kind of went with it. So sometimes it gets a little uh, uh, complicated with it. But um, 
just to say that, you know, this is the way that Lutherans uh, behaved. Despite the liturgical significance, the catechetical benefits of learning hymnody and having a core group that you know, and the broadly established practice of the contemporary hymnody among Lutherans, the influences of where are we back? You know, we got it again. Pietism and then rationalism during the 18th and 19th century eroded awareness and appreciation of the church here and essentially eradicated a widespread use of the historic Lutheran hoplider, the chief hymn, the chief hymn, meaning the hymn of the day. It just decimated it among uh, Hymnody in general deteriorated. Hymns were no longer selected according to the circumstances of the season, nor as a confession of the gospel or other prophets of the day. They were chosen instead with emotional or analytical intent, pietism or rationalism, to reflect a particular emphasis, emphasis of the local preacher and his sermon. The hymn of the day languished for several generations. Finally, I'm going to jump on ahead. There was a man named Ralph Gerke, who promoted an awareness and encouraged a renewed practice of contemporary hymnody in the United States with the publication of Planning the Service. This is a reprint of it. It's like Bishop Heiser said, all the good books are out of print. You had to get a reprint of it in order to, to find it. Um, which influenced many Lutheran pastors in the decades to come. Gerke's contributions paved the way for a deliberate development of the hymn of the day in Lutheran Book of Worship and Lutheran Worship. So, uh, what did you what did you have? Well, we had um, I guess I didn't bring the hymn books down. Uh, we had TLH. We had the Lutheran hymnal. Uh, it had hymns in it, but it did not actually have a list of the hymns. Uh, according to the church here, in that 1941 hymnal, um, it does not have it at all. Do I have one of those? Um, that's Lutheran worship. Um, it was printed, and this is from the pastor's book. The uh, uh, this is from the one of the pastor's book. This was called the Handbook of the Lutheran. Uh, to the Lutheran hymnal, in which it would go through and explain the hymns and who wrote them and, and what verses, stanzas were left out and stuff like that. And so it was printed in the pastor's book. Here's the epistle, Romans 13, for first Sunday in Advent. Here is the gospel, Matthew 21. And here are the hymns in TLH that go with those readings. But you don't see a particular hymn of the day. Um, that's, that's not found in there. Uh, uh, this, by Ralph Gerke, doesn't come about till 1961. So, the 1941 hymnal is not until about 20 years later that it is promoted concerning the importance of having a hymn of the day. Um, let's see. This is Gerke's book. 
in which he talks about, uh, he talks about it for the week. And so, not only do you use it on that Sunday, but you use it the rest of the week. Uh, the importance of the recommendation of plan is that each parish adopt the plan whereby each Sunday or festival has its own particular hymn, which we hear called the hymn of the week, or simply the hymn. There is good precedent for such practice. In the golden age of church music, Reformation and post-Reformation, a series of hymns gradually developed in the Lutheran church, which had their established place. And interesting enough, at the very beginning, they put them in place of the gradual, between the epistle and uh, the gospel. Um, he goes on to, uh, 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 to explain even more. Um, I'm just kind of giving you a, a side uh, note on this. Oh, and so here is uh, his first Sunday in Advent in which he goes through and says, okay, let me give you a planning sheet. Here's the introit, here's the collect, here's the epistle, here's the gradual, the intervening chants, the gospel, and then when he gets to the bottom, he says, this is the hymn of the week, Savior of the Nations, come. These are the other hymn suggestions that he puts those. He gives notes concerning glorious Shelsus and not during Advent, so he's really bringing them back to a liturgical service of sorts. I want you to note, and I will come back to this later, congregation, he says, this ought to be sung antiphonally. The congregation singing 1, 3, 5, and 7, the choir singing 2, 4, and 6. Interesting. Eric. Was this a guide for the pastor, or was this a script that they just followed? It was a guide for the pastor in planning the service. So as you're picking hymns, you would open this up, and you would look, find, here's the hymn of the day, so I'm going to put that right after the gospel, um, and uh, right after the prayer, and then these are the other ones, opening hymns would be good for this. So the pastor was to use this to help him in planning things. Is that what you asked? Mm -hmm. Other questions? So that was what was provided. Okay. So there wasn't a list in, uh, in TLH. When we get to Lutheran worship, uh, we do have a full set of propers. We've got First Sunday in Advent. We've got a collect on the next page in Lutheran worship. You might remember I told you before, they said, oh, here's the one-year series, but you know what? We're going to all start following the three-year series in our Missouri Senate congregations. And here you read on uh, year A, you read this on year B, year C. You can see that they took, like, if the gospel, which they put as Luke 19, 28 to 38, that happens to be over here, they gave other readings that would kind of go with it. So you might read Mark's one account, Matthew one time, Luke's another. Um, that was kind of the idea. They also had different readings that went with it. Um, what's quite interesting is that, if you remember already from what I just showed you, Romans 13 uh, is the uh, re epistle reading, not, not, not. Uh, the gospel reading is Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Wait, that's not really even the historic one-year series that the church... You know, this is a different one-year series. Where did you come? We're not even using the one-year series. So all of the, like, Martin Luther sermon books 
where he has a sermon on every gospel and a sermon on every epistle. You go to Advent 1 to kind of look and see what's, you know. It's not even, he never preached on this. So that's really not even the one year. You come over here and you finally go, well, the, the secondary uh, uh, optional one is Luke, Matthew 21, but none of those. Oh, so, so with the three-year series and with LW, that also began. Now, we still had a church year. They got rid of the Gesimas because of the three-year and, and different things like that. But um, uh, Lutheran worship did have a hymn of the day. For Advent, one, Savior of the Nations, come. Yeah, great. We get to Advent, two, there is an asterisk, which lets us know, if you go down to the bottom of the page, that it says, where's an asterisk? Uh, it varies for the two things. If it's appropriate to the, uh, asterisk means it's appropriate for the one year, the letters A, B, and C. So all of a sudden, this core hymnody starts to, well, that's good for the one year, but it doesn't work for the three year. And then we start. Now, the didactic purpose of having one hymn is so that if we have more hymns, we just don't learn any of them. Because we've got, you know, I, wait a minute, we've got to get to the, the heart. So you can see it already started to kind of change. And these listings of the hymn of the day are not traditional. Someone came along and said, you know, whether they even knew that there was a traditional. Much of the uh, readings here uh, concerning the hymn of the day will say things like, well, the chief hymn of the day is very important. Pastor, you need to be very careful as you pick it. I go, wait a minute. The chief hymn of the day is provided. You don't pick it. It's there. There are other hymns I pick, for sure. But, so that, that at that point you kind of go, wait a minute, are we talking about the same thing? Well, no, because it had gone away. And it wasn't being used. So, uh, going back, already about five years ago, as we were looking at some of these things, uh, this is a, a printout of the... Sunday, what Sunday, and the hymns that are from our Augustana Service Book and Hymnal. Um, these are the various hymnals that we've had to go in order to try to retrieve some of these more traditional hymnity uh, that is there that may have gotten replaced or, or lost. Now, that being said, there is not, I, I mean, Despite there being, and as we mentioned before, by the end of the 16th century, there were lists of hymns, yes. They didn't always agree, so you know you can't say it's right or wrong. But by and large, they have the same. And, you know, there are times in which someone comes along and, and writes a phenomenal hymn, and we kind of go, yeah, that one's better. You know, so there's always that kind of thing. But um, I'm going to say this is where uh, we're going back to some of those and trying and, and that's why in our uh, uh, in this supplement it's not final, it's a draft it's just to you know, go through what are we doing? We're trying them out we're taking a look at them, will they work? or are there changes? or what about the tune? or what about the text? so that kind of gives you a little bit of a connection uh, uh, with that Brian first, and then... Be careful. Are you saying if it's not traditional, it's not orthodox? 
No. Um, and by traditional, then you have to define that, don't you? Yeah. So, uh, um, no, as I said, yeah, we understand that, that this is not uh, golden tablets sent down. You do have to examine things, and I think we've got to have a, a little bit different understanding. Um, you know, uh, let's have a hymn book. Okay, uh, if I give you out a sheet and tell you, tell me all the hymns you like and pass it back in, you get the idea pretty quickly that what? This is a hymn book of all the hymns you like. Well, I'm not quite sure that's the best way to put together a, a hymnal. Um, in fact, if, however, I taught you <laughs> the best core Lutheran hymnody, and you love them, now I'm really happy. You know, it may be the ones that you like, but it may be that you need to learn these so that you like them. Um, so, yeah, there are some different ways of, of looking. And, and it may be that you, you'll look at some hymns and you kind of go, you know, uh, um, uh, maybe the church has used this for a while, but it may not serve us now. Okay. Eric. Kind of to piggyback off of that as well. So you showed us historically, okay, wherever there was deviation from this traditional liturgy, it seemed to have theological difference roots that it was changing. And then, but then this last lesson you're showing us seems like some of the other differences were just ignorance. They didn't. We're just what? Ignorance. They didn't know. Are they. So, if I, you know, if I'm a pastor and I don't know that there's a hymn of the day, I'm not going to be picking it. Now, if I'm not picking it, does that mean I'm terrible and wrong? And no, I just I, you might it may be ignorance that I don't know. The problem is, is that you give me a hymn book that has uh, uh, pietistic hymns and whatever. I might pick the best of them, but they still might not be the best we have of Lutheran hymnody, of those that highlight Christ, teach long gospel, that proclaim the faith. So yes, we need to look historically, though. If you look at these things, and here's where we're going to see historically with this, when these doing timers, when these hymns were replaced, and you start to see the hymns that are there, just because it came later doesn't mean it's bad. Well, no, but I'm noticing it's very emotional and subjective. I'm noticing that it's you know it doesn't highlight. I mean, you begin to see there is where there's a deterioration. In one, there is in the other. Now, cause and effect mm, could be effect and cause. It could be cause and effect. But you can always see it where there is a deterioration in the hymnody, in the liturgy. There is always a deterioration in the doctrine and the practice. And, and um, why did Pietism want to get rid of a one-year series? Because we were bored. Because what we really wanted was emotionality, and that won't work. So it's, you know, you kind of go, yeah, there's a doctrinal reason. Um, that goes with it. Karn? Um, so the choir is going through this uh, Augustana hymn book and helping the congregation learn them and sing them. It's a very difficult process as we critique these hymns um, and I've had a lot of conversations with pastor and the choir about what do we see, what do we like, what do we don't like. I honestly have to push down my own 
preconceived notions, my own pietism that I know is there deep down from early years, and go, okay, I've got to give this him a chance. Um, and there's so many aspects to look at. It's it's the words, it's the way the words flow with the music, it's the, the easiness of the music, it's um, the, the consonants, the way, oh, oh my goodness, I mean, you could just, Putting, yeah, how singable is this? But, I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, how many of you think you're going to plan your own funeral? And you're going to, you know, that's the, the trend now. Oh, yeah, Pastor, here's here's the hymns I want you to have for my funeral. We all throw Lutheranism out the window and decide, yeah, uh, this is these are the readings and the hymns that I want for my funeral, and they're all the ones that you like. Well, honestly, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But that's what we think. Um, really, the pastor's in charge of your funeral, and he's going to do a good job. You're not even going to be there, really. Um, so it doesn't matter. Oh, <laughs> um, just disappointed. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you're not going to hear it. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, it's, it's a lot to think about, and it's, it's been a very enlightening experience. To uh, I'll just I'll make a side swipe and we'll go on. In uh, most of the time in the front part of the hymnal, you have Advent hymn, Christmas hymn, you have to, to, you know, uh, justification hymns, redemption hymns, stewardship. Okay, great, great, great. The back of the hymnal has spiritual songs. When it comes to the funeral. And people say, here's the ones I like. It doesn't matter if I have had for you Lutheran hymns for 20 years. I find out that what's in the heart is in the garden, I'm walking along. It's it's all of the, how great they are, with long, lengthy, whatever, it is Elvis Presley singing, you know, a spiritual something, another. And you kind of go, that comes from the heart. That's, that's what's residing there. And so, you know, my, my, my you know, I mentioned about pietism one time. You know, well, my dad's, are there pietism? There, there pietism in that, in that hymnal? I go, yes, it, they call it spiritual songs. And he looked at me and goes, you know, that, that's, those are the ones I like. He goes, all right, you don't pick those too often, do you? So you realize quite quickly, you know, the distinction between those. Well, Lutheran hymns are so comforting, and those are just feel good. And if we sing how great they are at my mom's funeral, she'll sit up in her casket and lecture us, and nobody wants that. So <laughs> you've heard it enough. Well, I'm going. I know that my redeemer lives. Stephen. Okay. Yeah. And my kids said, "You mean we have to sing all eight verses?" And I said, "Yes." <laughs> Stephen. I'm absolutely guilty of that. Five eighteen. You know, it's just something that. And not all of that. I just I'm, I'm making a broad sweep, but 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 you know I think I think we all uh, and and part of this is what we're going to describe as culture. I'm sorry, you've grown up in this culture. I can easily look back at the American Revolution and go, you know, look at that. I can't believe they did that. You know, but we have trouble looking at our own lives because we're in it. 
and we don't realize it until the next generation looks back at us. So that's what we find. Um, I do have to wrap this up. Um, no, I, I, I guess we, we, we all of us spiritually know nothing about the, the hymns, just like we spiritually know nothing of the Bible or Christ. You know, and in, in my case, in mine and Patty's case, what am I going to hear about this? Uh, Everybody's looking for guidance, you know, and so it's wonderful. You know, we're going back to the beginning, and and we're learning the way that Martin Luther outlined it. Right, so is, yeah. is this something where yeah, I, I'm looking for something that's going to tickle my fancy, or is this something where we're coming saying, you know what, the hymn is actually a part of the service, and the hymn is actually designed to teach and to confess my faith. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, you don't come and say, hey, pastor, i got a creed for us. <laughs> Nobody does that. But, you know, what, and again, it, why has it... Because we, we we don't understand how it goes together, and so I, you know, I'm using obviously as you can see an extended length of time to not only give us the history so that we can look back and see where it came from, and and then start to understand, but also then so that we can apply it to as we go forward. Uh, Tony Prosca. Yeah, there's one thing we haven't touched. When I was out in Kiwani. That's the first place I heard the term hymn thumper. He didn't like it. Whoop! Goes to the hymn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you closed it. Thumped yeah. it right into the hymn. Uh, the hymnal. So I had. I'm not singing that one. They said, "Well, the, the men don't sing." Okay, take a look at the music. It's written in four-part harmony. Lutherans were very good at four-part harmony, but the men don't get the melody. You put the men on the melody, they can't sing it. I said, "You sing with me." Joy to the world. They couldn't finish it. Because it was not in their testament, they call it. So we came up with this other pastor there who some they put me on the hymn selection committee. You could pick a hymn and give it to us and we would assign it to a particular Sunday. No regard to why. <laughs> so then the guy says, I picked this hymn and you didn't sing. He said, where were you last Sunday when we sang it? <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but it came to mind, right? All right. Um, I am... Give it up, I Pastor. I didn't... Uh, I thought I included... Um, I'm gonna, you know what? I'm going to come back to this. Um, and, and, and we're going to hit it again. Uh, let me... Uh, I think there's a couple more things that that needs to be said about this, and and then we'll we'll keep going on. Again, I'm I'm taking kind of a side road after Muhlenberg has restored uh, some of this core hymnody and and uh, for the congregation, it's going with a liturgical year, a historic one-year series. It fits in with a liturgy. Uh, that the church has, and yet we're going to see that it goes away. It, it is decimated for for years. 
Um, Real quick. The reason why the, the destruction of Jerusalem was in the old Lutheran hymnals, that happens every day. A new hymnal, when it comes out, the fight begins for the next one. <laughs> Heresy is always there. And the end is always coming. Well, next time I'll talk more about that uh, core hymnity, what some of those are, the importance, uh, how the pastor and the people make use of it. I'm going to talk about the choir in connection with this, uh, even as our, our choir is helping us with the hymnity. So, for example, the hymn of the day for uh, Invocavit, the first Sunday in Advent, that's what today is. Um, it is, as the choir would tell me, a beautiful hymn. This is not the first Sunday in Advent. Oh, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. First Sunday in Lent. Uh, in um, I got the Latin name right. Um, anyway, it, as they would say, it is a beautiful tune. Um, it is not familiar. Um, and so, you know, uh, sit beside a choir member and, and let them help you along, as the organ will as well. And you will see why why this one was chosen. So, so hang around another twenty years, and we'll like it. Oh, you may like it before <laughs> oh, no, then, but it, like it right some take a while. Really some take a while. So, my comment is: is people have not been taught to sing, and that's the major problem right there. And it's not taught in the public schools. And of course, that was one of the reasons why uh, the uh, you had all these church schools starting off was to teach the people to sing. If you study that, that's where it's at. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a great freedom uh, as regards worship. We ask, dear Lord, that we might make use of the wisdom which you have given to, oh, our Christian forefathers, uh, and that we might always judge it by the uh, justification of your Son and the uh, law and gospel which you have taught us, but that we might receive that which uh, is uh, of, of greatest benefit for us and gives the greatest glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.